Hello, and welcome to the MS for Mama podcast. I'm your host, Abby Halberstadt, happy wife, mama to 10, Bible-believing Christian. And on today's show, I have a special treat for you with a special guest, my first ever virtual guest. And I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation that we have. Before we get started, though, I want to talk to you about Summit Ministries. Summit Ministries is an organization that has been a blessing to our family. Two of our boys have gone once. Our oldest boy has gone twice and would like to go again. It is a Christian apologetics camp for young people. They have different programs for different age groups, but the one that Ezra, our oldest, and Simon, our second born, attended is for ages 16 to 22. It's a two-week intensive in which they are able to get so much good theology, rich apologetics, and ways of viewing culture through a biblical, historically Christian lens. There's wonderful speakers. There's also lots of opportunities to enjoy themselves beyond the classroom, movie nights, laser tag, hiking, get-togethers. And my boys came home with friends that they group texted with and made connections that they really enjoyed. If you're interested in an environment where your teens are challenged, but also given opportunities to flourish, develop new friendships and grow, check out Summit Ministries. I'll put the link in my show notes and you can use the code MAMA24, that's M-A-M-A and the numbers 24, for $200 off their registration fee using that link. All right, guys, I have such a huge treat for you today. Today on the podcast, I have my first ever virtual guest, and we were so excited that the technology lined up and we didn't have to do a bunch of tweaking because let me tell you, I am not a technology tweaker, but this is Elisa Childers. You have probably already heard of her, and for good reason. She has a wonderful book called Another Gospel, and she has released another, and then we're going to talk about her most recent book um, today, among other things. So welcome to the podcast, Elisa. Oh, Abby, it's so great to be with you. I um, love getting to know you a little bit at the Wellness Collective event, and we just hit it right off. So I'm so glad to be here with you today and talk about this topic with your audience. Yeah, so... As a little background to that, both Elisa and I were speaking at an event called the Wellness Collective in Pennsylvania. And at one point when she was on stage, I had had listened to your podcast, I was familiar with your books, but I hadn't heard you speak live. And so at one point I leaned over to my husband and I said, is it weird that it's a little bit like watching myself on stage? Like, like just (laughs) like personality and, and delivery were really similar. So Alisa didn't know me very well at that point, but I sidled up to her and said something like that. And she goes, I just told my husband the same thing. <laughs> yeah, we're like the same person. We're, we're, much we're very person. similar. And in, in, I think, <laughs> yeah, I agree. Um, so tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us a little, little bit about kind of your walk with the Lord, your background. Um, yeah. You are primarily a writer and speaker and podcaster in the apologetics region yeah. of Christianity. Is that the way that you would put it, do you think? Yeah, that's kind of my community is the apologetics community, the kind of snooty intellectuals. Although, you know, they're not that snooty, but yeah, I mean, yeah. some can be. But yeah, I never saw myself being in that space ever. So so how did surprised. you land there, do you think? Well, it was really largely through my my journey of faith. So my my story is one that has, you know, the Lord keeps unfolding these um, endings for me that aren't really endings, but just lead me into different places that I never would have saw for myself. So Grew up in a Christian home, had really great Christian parents who loved the Lord, really gave me the gospel, discipled me well. And I genuinely loved the Lord on my own, like for myself. It was um, not a blind faith. It was something I owned. I loved Jesus. I loved the Bible. In fact, I had read almost the whole Bible by the time I was 12. I just loved God's word. 
but I never really thought about it intellectually, like reasons why I believe those things were true. So I, ne I never really doubted what I believed and I just lived mm -hmm. it and did lots and lots of ministry all my life. And then <clears throat> I, I had a faith crisis as an adult. And essentially that's what brought me into this space because I was in a church that would eventually become a progressive Christian church, although I didn't know that that's where it was headed at the time. But I was invited to be a part of a small group uh, by the pastor. And in this small group, basically Christianity was deconstructed. All of the mm -hmm. core beliefs of the gospel were picked apart, explained away. And then I learned later, I didn't know this at the time, but I learned later that the pastor had already, he had already deconstructed his faith and was trying to get his parishioners into deconstruction. Mm -hmm. And so he was really good at it. So I, man, I, it brought me up to the edge of agnosticism. I mean, I knew Jesus and I loved Jesus. So my heart could not have been convinced that it wasn't real, but my head was convinced it wasn't real. So there was this okay. really agonizing inner battle. So as I, I cried out to the Lord and as the Lord led me to study and I studied all apologetics, theology, church history, all these things, um, slowly that was rebuilt. And then when I came out on the other side of it, I really wanted to help other people who might be encountering progressive Christianity because it's like really sneaky because you think it's, they call themselves Christians they say their beliefs are Christians. They use a lot of Christian words, but it's actually a different religion. And that's what I realized when I came through it is that this is a different religion, even though it has the same name. So I have said this to my husband over and over again about people who are still claiming to be Christians, but who are rejecting all tenets of historical Christianity that lines up with scripture, that lines up with the beliefs of our forefathers, that has been tested through time. And I, I always say, I wish they would just pick a different title. Yeah. Like, why, why do we need to cling to Christian when that's not really what you're even desiring to be anymore, at least not in the way that it's been defined for the last 2000 years. And I do think it is that um, it is a gateway mm. to have people listen to you more if you sound like you're still kind of on the same team. Would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that's why, like in my case, I was at a church that it took them about six or seven years to admit what they really were. And and most churches don't, do, don't ever even do that. So churches that end up sliding into progressive Christianity, a lot of times half the people don't even know that they're in a progressive Christian church. Some of the staff may not even realize that the church is now progressive. So it's very slow what slide. Would you, okay. Yeah. What would you say would be kind of some key points to look out for? if you are in a church and you're kind of starting to feel the Holy spirit nudge you to say like, oh, you might want to pay attention to this. What would you pay attention to? I would pay attention to the way the Bible is talked about. What, mm. what do they think it is? Because a lot of times you'll hear people say, I have a high regard for the Bible. I have a very high view of scripture, but when you ask them what it is, they talk about it more like it's more of a human book than it is a divine book. So of course we know mm. that the Bible is God's word revealed and God spoke through humans, the inspiration, right? The doctrine of inspiration. But in progressive churches, that human element gets really elevated, whereas the divine part of it gets minimized or even rejected altogether. In fact, many progressive Christians will say it's a human book about God. So that would be like a really big one. And another one to look for would be if you're not hearing the gospel like at all, or at least the gospel framed in terms of sin and redemption, but you're hearing it more like a social justice activism, be good to your neighbor. Here's how we can be good in our communities. But they're not talking about you're a sinner. You need a savior. Jesus is your savior. You're not hearing that language, but the word gospel 
gets more associated with kind of how to love your neighbors and be be good in your community. That's another one. And there's a few more, but I, I'd say those are probably the two big ones to be looking for. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that those are both the ones that I see happening on social media as well, because we kind of have these almost little microcosms of church happening with followings of people like Jen Hatmaker or like Glennon Doyle who are still claiming Christ and they are basically leading a congregation of very devoted followers and people who also claim that they are followers of Jesus. And they say, therefore I am a Christian. If I'm a follower of Jesus in any way, shape or form, that's what makes me a Christian. Um, And of course the Bible is so clear that if you love me, you will obey my commandments. So I guess I would, that would be the third one that I would say that I see popping up a lot is um, that kind of low regard for scripture in terms of actually seeing it as God's divine inspired word and God breathed. Um, And then you also have the, but I don't actually have to do that because that's legalism or that's um, harmful. You've Mm. talked to me some behind the scenes about this language of toxicity and harm. Can you expound on that a little bit in relation to, because we're, we're going to get to the deconstruction part because that's what your new book is about, but we're kind of inching our way there. And my main audience is moms. Um, and so one of the reasons that I wanted to have you on was because our theology matters for us individually, but then it really matters when we're teaching it to our kids because you have that trickle down effect, which they will then have for their own children. We can't yeah. guarantee that if we give them good theology, they're then going to hang on to it. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about in just a minute. And then that they're then going to pass it down. But at least there's a chance if we gave yeah. it to them well from the beginning. So I think as moms, we are desiring as Christ following Bible believing, God loving moms, we are desiring to disciple our children well in truth. And so we kind of have to recognize where the problems mm. are coming from, right? Yeah, and I think uh, just as a mom myself, this is something I'm thinking about all the time, just constantly. How can I actively disciple my kids to not just know what the Bible says, but also what it is? And I think that's really mm. important as moms too, especially as we're battling all these false ideas about God, because there are so many ideas out there that sound really good. Right. You mentioned Glennon Doyle and Jen Hatmaker and you go on their Instagrams and it all seems so positive. It all seems so loving. It all seems so like, you know, yeah, they're just they're just these they seem like these wonderful people are doing so much good in the world. But what we have to understand, especially as Christian moms, is that we need to teach our kids to define terms as well, because that word love that has gotten a massive makeover, especially on those mm-hmm. platforms like those those high level influencers that are influencing millions of people in the name of Jesus. through the vehicle of quote unquote love, but see, they're defining love to mean just affirming and celebrating whatever anyone else's moral choices are. I mean, unless you're conservative Christian, of course, like that's, (laughs) that's not on the table, but you know, this redefinition of love, whereas biblically, and this is just something we can pass down to our kids too. Like, Hey guys, what is the Bible? Well, this is not just a human book about God. This is a book where God reveals who he is to us. This is his actual word. And so we need to take it really seriously and we need to understand what it is so that the kids know that what discernment means is taking everything that we look at in media and music and movies and whatever it is we're watching or listening to. And we filter that against scripture. I mean, I do this with my kids constantly to the point Mm -hmm. that it annoys them. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it's okay to annoy them with stuff like that because I see the fruit of it. I really do. 
Yeah. And I think giving our kids those tools to recognize, because I'm doing the same thing. Like we're talking about history and I'm like, do you see how this has moved from this? Why do you think that is? And then, you know, how would scripture respond to that? Like, is, is that wisdom or is that an example of man elevating their own knowledge above God's wisdom? And I mean, that's a very leading question, but with my teenagers, I'm stopping it. Is that wisdom? You know, mm. um, I had a conversation with my second born who is 16 the other day. And it was about um, kind of the, the, the eugenics of abortion, basically like, is it okay to, and we're just going on a rabbit hole. I won't stay here for long, but is it okay to take a pill that you know could potentially be an abortifacient if you value life at conception? And cause I had a follower that literally asked me, you know, okay, I didn't realize this. Now that I know this, do you think that it would be a sin? So mm-hmm. we were talking about what the Bible says. If you know for you that something is a sin and yeah. you do not do it, you know, if you that's know right. that you're supposed we to do something. We just read that as a family. It. Yeah. Yeah. We just read and that. And so it's like, that's, that's a different standard that the world gives us. It's not a sliding standard, but it's an interesting one that you have been given this knowledge that you didn't have before. And now you have to act on it. And when you don't act on it or you run the other way, kind of like Jonah did, for example, then you're in sin. And, and so he kind of storied that out for me. Cause as I was asking him questions, he was like, well, yeah, it's hard to think about because it's like this teeny tiny human. And I said, well, is that, is that different than a teenage human? And he's like, not in value, but in our brains, it's easier to write it off as okay. Cause we can't see them, you know? And he mm. could, he, so he was like grappling. I said, so ultimately, where do you think you land? And he's like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that pill. You know, I, I wouldn't want to take, take that chance. So yeah, there are these real life decisions where we're bringing our kids to the brink of and saying, what does scripture have to say about it? So I love that. Um, we have been in a series on my podcast about a Christian response to church. And I wanted you to be the culmination of that series. You're part three. The first one was um, that we shouldn't be scoffers because I see a lot of mockery of the Mm. church today. Can you, can you, are are you seeing some of that as well? And can you talk to that a little bit? Oh my goodness. We are living in a time where there is so much scoffing and mockery, which of course the Bible predicts. We shouldn't be surprised by that. But just since we've been doing the promotion for this upcoming book, um, I I, kind of, I knew we'd get a lot of pushback, of course, Mm. from the deconstruction community and all that. But I didn't know quite how it was going to look because I'm used to pushback from progressive Christians who are sort of related to deconstruction because every progressive Christian has deconstructed, but not every person who deconstructs ends up a progressive Christian. So that would be the relationship there. And I'm used to the pushback being a certain flavor from progressive Christians, but the outright mocking, scoffing, sarcasm that I have Mm. gotten from the deconstruction crowd in particular, because that's going to be a mix of people. Deconstructionists are people who have left Christianity, but they might have ended up in progressive Christianity or New Age or or secular humanism, or they may have landed in a lot of different places. But it's like, what unifies them? Is there so much mockery? Um, mm. It's unreal to me. Yeah, it's it's like not again. It's not a surprise because the Bible predicts that. But I think it is so important, especially for us as moms. I try to do. I try so hard to do this for my kids. Like when someone comes on with a really mocking comment or something. Now my kids aren't on social media, so they don't see it unless I show it to them. But sometimes yeah. I'll do that. I'll show them like, look at the comments. Mm-hmm. What do you think is motivating this? And we'll talk through some of the things. 
But it's just unbelievable to me how there's so little rational interaction, but just utter like laughing emojis. Just you might say a statement. It's just all laughing emojis and there's no engagement with what you've actually mm. said or stated mm -hmm. or claimed. It's it's you are not exaggerating about that. Okay, so, so we're jumping into deconstruction. Let's talk about this a little bit. Um, you said that deconstructors have walked away from Christianity, and yet the narrative that I'm seeing online would not agree with that. Right. So I'm thinking of a particular account. I actually shared this account with you the other week to get your feedback, um, who absolutely is claiming that not only is she still a Christian, she is a better Christian than she was before she deconstructed. Um, what would you say to that? So there's one of two things going on there. And, um, you know, so I'll just use this. We'll, we'll maybe focus less on that one actual specific and zoom out on the bigger picture. So there's probably yeah. a lot of people saying stuff like that. And there definitely yeah, are. There are. Um, so there's one of two things going on there. The first scenario is that this person is simply defining deconstruction differently than I would. So it, people are using the word deconstruction to mean everything from, you know, changing their mind on a secondary doctrine or maybe making their faith their own and going through all of the faith tradition they were taught and measuring that against scripture and making sure what they believe is true. People are using deconstruction to mean everything from that to completely leaving the faith. So because it's used in such a broad spectrum of ways, that's why we define it a certain way and defend that in our book. But, but right. granted, there are people out there that could be doing that. And so if that's the case, if the person is an Orthodox Christian, if they do hold to historically Christian beliefs and they say they have deconstructed into it, I'm not going to quibble over words. I might encourage them to use a better word like Reformation, one that isn't connected to postmodernism and one that isn't, you know, it's manifesting in culture in such this, this broad way. Now, what I suspect, though, is it's probably not that because that's pretty rare that you actually find somebody who says I've deconstructed or I'm deconstructing, but they're holding to biblical authority. They're holding to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, the doctrine of hell, the, you know, the second coming, the resurrection. Yeah. That is so rare to find that. Now, what's probably happening in the scenario you're talking about is this person has probably decided that certain conservative Christian beliefs are, quote unquote, toxic and harmful. And mm -hmm. so what those would be is any kind of objective statement that would be perceived as a power grab. So any kind of statement that the church might make, like you're a sinful person or you can't live openly a rebellious, sinful lifestyle and remain a member of the church. Mm -hmm. um, you know, hell is a real place that people mm -hmm. are going to go. When, when we say things like that in this postmodern culture, those are perceived as power grabs. So people will mm -hmm. say, well, that's toxic and harmful. That's an abusive doctrine because you're just trying to keep power over me or you're just trying to prop up systems of oppression and so what, mm. what usually what I would recommend doing in a scenario like that, where somebody's like, no, I'm a better Christian now, I would just ask them, first of all, to ask them what they mean by deconstruction. What does that word mean? But then yeah. also ask them, what is, what does it mean to you to be a Christian? What is Christianity? What is the gospel? And then you're going to start getting to which of these two scenarios you're dealing with. And my guess is that it's probably going to be that the person thinks they're still following Christ and following a version of Christianity, but they've actually rejected the core ethics and the core theology of the church, as you beautifully put it earlier, has been defined a certain way for 2000 years. So let's get really basic. Talk to me about first tier theological issues. What would be your top four? Right. So the way I talk about top tier, like essentials, 
is if it's a, if I don't put it in the essential category unless it directly affects your salvation. Hmm. So within that essential category, I have two categories in that one category. So beliefs you would have to be aware of and beliefs that are true that you wouldn't deny, but you wouldn't necessarily have to be aware of to get saved. Like, for example, right. you would not have to be aware that God is a trinity in order to get saved. But sure. as a Christian, you wouldn't deny that. That's essential, right? Yep. Um, yep. So in the category of what you would actually have to be aware of, I would say the maybe top four, I don't want to get this wrong, so I might do five or six, but um, sure, would be that you're a sinner. You'd have to recognize that you need salvation, that you're a sinner, that Jesus is God and man, right? You don't have to be able to write a dissertation on you know, the uh, hypostatic union or something, but you'd at least have to <laughs> implicitly be aware that you're you're trusting in Christ, who is God, fully God and fully man. Um, I would say, so that's the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, um, saved by grace. So grace is unmerited favor. It's not something you can earn. Um, I would put the resurrection that you, you have to, you have to believe that Jesus physical body was raised from the dead in order to be, uh, rightfully call yourself a Christian. Um, right. and then it's faith alone. So this is not, um, you know, grace is unmerited favor, faith, faith is active trust. So, you know, it's not checking intellectual boxes. It's believing the right things, but it's not just believing the right things. As the Bible says, the demons believe all the right things, sure. but it's active trust in Jesus. So it's like, I, I like to use this analogy of when I go somewhere to speak, um, it's one thing for me to believe the plane will get me there, but it's, I haven't put active trust in that belief till I put my body on the plane. And so that's kind sure. of how biblical faith is. It's active trust. And yeah. so, yeah, I would say those are probably the big ones and substitutionary atonement. You'd have to, you'd have to be aware that there was an exchange at the cross that Jesus died in your place for your sins. So it's and really just kind of the, able to do that yourself. Exactly. So it's just like those pillars of the gospel um, yeah. that I'm a sinner. I need a savior. Jesus is the savior. He died on the cross for my sins, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven is returning to judge the living and the dead and heaven and hell as real places. I would probably just put it in a narrative like that. Yeah, absolutely. And those are so good to have, even if they're just reminders for us, even if we are solid on all of those, it's like, man, we are being bombarded with this narrative that those are not only, you know, they're, they're exclusionary, toxic, mm -hmm. um, harmful beliefs, but that they're ridiculous, that they're, you know, that, that why would anyone still hold on to this? So I had a question for you. Let me think of how to frame it. Um, I feel like when a lot of people are talking about their deconstruction, they seem to be saying that they are forced into it by the hypocrisy of the evangelical church, by the, um, let's say the misapplication of leadership, like it wasn't me, it's them. It's, it's not me, it's you kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so they're, they're, they're so grateful that they got to this point because clearly this is where God was leading them. But the impetus was um, somebody doing something wrong within the church mm -hmm. or mm -hmm. discovering that, you know, a whole denomination has a corrupt core or that kind of thing. Kind of how would you speak and how would you equip moms who are in gospel believing preaching churches and know themselves to be in a place of fruit and yet feel maybe inadequate to defend mm. the church and its function and what a thriving one looks like? Because we were talking about that, too. I'll talk about that a little, little bit more in a second. Kind of what would your 
kind and compassionate but truthful response be to someone that's basically saying they forced me into this? Mm. Well, I, my advice on that question would be that it's going to vary depending on what the person has actually been through or not. So, like, for example, if you're talking to an 18-year-old girl who's been molested by her youth pastor, you're mm. going to deal with that differently than the person who is saying, I've been abused by the church because I was told that I couldn't be a member and remain in what they called a sinful lifestyle, right? Those are two mm. radically different things, but both are yeah. making the same claim of abuse. So I think definitely untying the knots and learning the real story behind it, because that is the tough thing about the spiritual abuse conversation is I know spiritual abuse is real. I've been through it. I have friends who yeah. have been through it. Um, we all know it exists. There are church scandals. There's church hypocrisy. All of that is real. There are pastors who have moral failings, and then those moral failings are covered up or not handled well by certain mm -hmm. churches, certainly not every church. So there's there's a certain extent to where there are some legitimate complaints. And, and many of our listeners today might even have a friend who's been through a horrific experience. And my advice to you in that is just cry with those who cry. Help your friend just with what she needs in that moment. Like maybe she just needs a good friend to love her and pray over her. Maybe help her get into some good, like good, healthy biblical counseling that's Bible based um, yeah. and deal with the healing from that before we worry about what we're calling the whole thing and all of that. But then you might have someone, like I said, who's claiming um, they, this is a big one, Abby. So this is something you'll see all over. And I'm sure you have seen all over the deconstruction hashtag is the hypocrisy of the evangelical church politically. Now, there's probably some truth to at least some of the claims. Like, I know that there are probably some far-right crazy people out there doing some crazy things, and maybe you went to one of their churches and that's a thing. But the problem is, is that they equate any kind of conservative politics with hypocrisy. So right. anybody who might have um, conservative politics or maybe be a registered Republican or maybe voted for Donald Trump or, you know, likes America, <laughs> I, you're going to get called a Christian nationalist. You're going to get called a hypocrite. And so it's so tough to untie these knots because some claims might actually be legitimate, but then others are, are really not. I think this whole Christian nationalism thing is so unfair. It's just like anybody, I've been called that over and over again, and mm -hmm. I've never said a nice thing about Trump in my life on, you know, publicly at least. So it's like, it's really unfair, the, the insults that get lobbed. But I think it requires on the behalf part of the Christian, we're going to have to be patient and filled with grace to try to untie those knots for our friends and loved ones and help and, and figure out like what is really behind this. Because it could be a whole host of things and it could be a lot of those things even intersected where there could be some legitimate claims and some illegitimate all like in the same story. Absolutely. So the second half of our conversation about a Christian response to church was about church hurt. And it's funny that we were joking about being the same person because a lot of the things that you're saying was what I touched on um, were what I touched on last week, which is this idea that in the comment section, I'm seeing a lot of people who are less concerned with the evangelical church um, not following Jesus and more concerned with the fact that they were called out in sin and that this was viewed as hurtful and toxic and traumatic and um, man, none of us like being told that we're wrong. None of us enjoy correction. Um, and I do think that it is the mark of a true believer in Jesus when they have been corrected rightly. And even if they don't respond well at first, they're able to come back and say, kind of like the parable of the son who says, I won't do that to the father. But then he goes and he does it. 
And that's still credited to him as, as obedience, mm-hmm. more so than the son who gives lip service and then doesn't follow through. Um, so I think that that is such a kindness of the Lord to us. Instead of being toxic, it's actually so healthy. It's so mm. healthy. I, I say this all the time. I have this in maybe both of my books, but, and it is such a basic Christian tenet, but a pastor put this in words so well. He said, the most unloving thing that you can do is watch someone walk down a path of destruction and do nothing to stand in their way or to stop them or to inform them that they're heading for death. Ultimately, um, would we watch someone, you know, walk across incredibly thin ice in a freezing pond and say nothing. And if we, if we didn't, would we be loving or would we just be, you know, I don't know. I don't care if you die. I don't care what happens to you. So that conversation about church hurt, that's exactly kind of the, the discussion that we were having. When you talk about the definition of deconstruction, I've heard some people use the term disentangling. Mm -hmm. Have you heard this word before? Yes. Do you think that there's do you think it's a good distinction? Do you think that there's an actual difference? Yeah, actually, the, I believe the person who coined that uh, word in this context is Ginger Duggar Vuolo, who came yeah. out of the Gother teachings. And her book is wonderful, by the way, if any of your um, listeners want a great book about how to do it right, how to how to disentangle bad beliefs from good ones and, and hold fast to what is true. Her book is really wonderful. And I like that word. Um, I'm, and I really love that Ginger said, I didn't deconstruct, even though the process that she went through was years long. It was agonizing. It was painful. It, it took so much effort and energy. And yet she's like, no, I didn't deconstruct. I disentangled bad teachings from good ones. And I really appreciate that she says that. I do think that's a good word. And honestly, I, I think that you know, if it's a case where somebody is using the word deconstruction, but what they really mean is what Ginger did, um, I would say that disentangle is a great word. The word we use in the book is reformation. We're just kind of going with the reform, the cry of the mm-hmm. reformation, semper reformanda, always be reforming. We should all of us, every single one of us, every single day, be making sure that what we believe lines up with scripture, that it lines up with what is true. And that, and that anything in us that we believe that is false or wrong or untrue, we need to reform those beliefs every single day. In fact, this is what the Bible tells us to do. Um, test all things, hold fast to what is good. Um, being like the Bereans that were testing what Paul was saying against the scriptures and searching the scriptures to see if what he was saying is true. These are things that we should all be doing. And the point that Tim and I in our book are making is like, why are we using a postmodern word to describe a biblical process? The Bible never says, get saved, be, you know, read the Bible, get baptized, and then deconstruct. That is not a biblical yeah. command. Yeah. It's the command is to constantly be using discernment and making sure what we believe is true and lines up with reality. And so the point we make in the book is like, I'm not going to, you know, knock somebody over the head if they're using deconstruction to describe a healthy process. But like, let's not do that. It's very confusing because how it's manifesting in broader culture is, is something completely different. And so the word we argue for is just the word reformation, but honestly, I don't care what you call it. Just, you know, is, call it discernment, call it sanctification, call it disentangling, but it's something we should all be doing is, is to ask hard questions, engage with our doubts, but we want to try to resolve our doubts. And this is a difference also between like a biblical process and what we see in the deconstruction movement is that, I mean, I definitely think that Christians should not be afraid of doubt we shouldn't push our doubts down or ignore them. We should engage with them. But doubt should ultimately be 
seen as something that you are hoping to resolve, right? You don't mm -hmm. want to just stay in doubt for the rest of your life. And yeah, so I think it's, it's James that talks about being tossed to and between fro. two mindsets. That's right. And that's yeah. what that word translated into English as doubt there means as being of two minds. Like you don't want to, you don't want to be tossed forever. You don't want to stay there. You want to engage it and seek truth and seek an answer. But in the deconstruction movement, the whole point is to stay in doubt. In fact, one of the most influential deconstructionists is a guy named the Naked Pastor, which don't Google the Naked <laughs> Pastor because it'll, don't just trust me, don't do that. But he has this very, I know, he's got this really popular channel and he says, have no goal and don't construct new beliefs after you deconstruct. Because if you do, you'll just have to deconstruct those. So his whole point is like, just don't have beliefs which by the way, is a belief that you shouldn't have beliefs. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's that, but that's, so that's, it's two very different goals in deconstruction versus a, like a more biblical process. We want to resolve our doubts. We want to land on truth and plant our feet in something solid. Whereas in deconstruction, it's like this endless process of doubting and just not knowing. Yeah. And I was looking down because I, I was having this snippet of a verse in my brain from James, but I couldn't place the actual reference. So I was trying to find it really quick. Um, I think one thing that you're that, that I find really interesting about what you're saying, where it's, there's no goal. You just kind of constantly keep swinging. You might end up here. Maybe you're a Buddhist for a while. You, maybe you're an agnostic for a while. I think of Audrey Assad, um, uh -huh. who's done everything from Catholicism to nihilism to now, I think just straight up atheism or, or, or just and denying. some psychedelic, you know, like mushrooms and she's tried yes, all of that. Yes. Stuff. Yeah. So that, that, is such a good, and, and it makes me so sad. I mean, her music is beautiful and um, has deep truths in it. Um, and, and we still listen to it and I still love it. And so it's an opportunity to pray for her when I listen to her music, knowing yeah. that at some point she spoke those words, hopefully in spirit and in truth, because the Lord's, the Lord's never done with us. But her life and her belief systems that have veered so wildly one direction or another kind of literally give you a picture of being on a boat and here comes this wind and here comes this wave and you go up and down. And the, the verse that popped in my head was from James 1.8 and it says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And there's just, it's, he's, he can't find any footing unstable yeah. in all his ways. That's like a really strong statement. So moving a little bit more back into the motherhood sphere, because we don't want our kids to be unstable. We don't want them to be tossed by every cultural trend. And boy, do we have some really strong cultural trends coming down the pipe or already here. Honestly, we've got the LGBTQ movement. We've got gender dysphoria. We've got um, just kind of inviting in Eastern religion and manifestation. And you've talked about the Enneagram before and how it has roots in, um, in the occult and just, we've made ourselves our own gods. And in the process, we're just kind of going to do this, you know, navel gazing, self-circulating and pull in things as we go by, you know? Mm. So kids, need a strong basis in faith, but eventually they're going to have to be able to think for themselves. Um, you mentioned your kids not being on social media. Can you talk about how you think that helps to not fall prey to some of these things? I, I just can't stress enough how corruptive social media is, especially as it relates to deconstruction. Without social media, 
deconstruction as we see it today doesn't exist. Now, that doesn't mean people won't. People have always been leaving the faith, of course. But because of social media, it's almost propped up as a new religion. There's priests and prophets and influencers and uh, deconstruction coaching sites and deconstruction pastors and all sorts of people that are like the figureheads of the movement. It's very evangelistic on social media. So it's not just like somebody decides that they are not a Christian anymore and they walk away and go live their life. No, it's they, they have a zeal to try to deconvert you as well, because they see what they're doing as virtuous. And what we mm. believe, like Abby, what you and I believe is seen in the deconstruction hashtag as not just like false or stupid or old fashioned, but actually harmful to people. Like what we believe is hurting people. And that's a that's a passionate belief in the deconstruction space. So that's why there's such an evangelistic zeal to deconvert others. The other thing about it is it operates a lot like propaganda. There is so much mm-hmm. false information. I'm going to give you an example. Um, and because th- these kinds of things are just so frustrating to me because they're so easy to refute and they're so just patently false, but nobody cares because there's enough people around them in that echo chamber to say, yeah, that's what I think too. That's what I think too. So they don't even care. But here's an example. So a deconstructionist, this made it into a book that was endorsed by other deconstructionists. And in the book, they were basically talking about how stupid the Bible is. And they were talking Mm. about the Exodus and how the Israelites were in the wilderness. And then Aaron tells the Israelites, bring me your gold jewelry. And this deconstructionist was basically mocking the story, saying, where did they get gold jewelry in the wilderness? Please. The Bible's so dumb. Which you're saying, oh, because you know that. Because I know, you know where they got their jewelry. Where did they get it, right? Even our <laughs> they kids got it know. from the Egyptians. That's they right. plundered them, and they gladly gave it to them. That's exactly right. And so we, and so, but you can see, it's like it's so cringy, even and embarrassing that that would make it into a book. Because I had a friend who went and asked her kid, where did the Egyptians get their gold jewelry, and even her kid knew, right? So because yeah. it's just there in the text. But it doesn't matter because it's like this echo chamber of propaganda. So truth doesn't matter. And so I think with our kids, as it relates with social media, um, you know, I'm you know, I've been thinking a lot about this. Like, I know at some point my kids will probably have social media when they're adults. So is there going to be a point in time when there's a very controlled, heavily discipled sort of introduction to social media for them? I don't know what that will look like yet. But, you know, I've asked those. And your oldest is how old, Elisa? She's 15. Okay. So so that we can maybe, you know, help her learn tools of how to protect herself on social media and things like that. I don't know. We'll, we'll cross yeah. that bridge when it comes. But it but at the same time, though, Abby, what I would really recommend moms start doing now is find a video from a deconstructionist. And you as the mom, like isolate that video, watch it, do a little research, figure out how you would answer the video and then show it to your kids Show mm. them the video. And before you give them your answer or your research, see, what do you guys think about this? Mm. There's a lot of videos like this. In fact, mo- you know, we're, our, what we believe about the world is actually in the minority. A lot of people believe like them. Let's talk about what they're saying and see if your kids, you know, in this way, you're modeling critical thinking for your kids and teaching them. And then you can share, well, here's how I think about what this person is saying. First of all, this just isn't true. And here I can show you why that's not true. But also notice that you know, the, the motivation or that they're not interacting with the claim, but they're just kind of looking at the motive. And there's so many great discussions you can have to engage your kids to be ready for that stuff when they're older. And also, I think, too, the reason I say that is because so many people in their deconstruction stories talk about how they never even heard any of this stuff till they got out of their house. And 
And I think just exposing our kids to some of these ideas in a controlled environment where we can disciple them well is just really important. I 100% agree with you. And I would add to that, that it would be pretty easy, for example, for my 11-year-old twins to refute that claim that the Israelites wouldn't have had any jewelry because we've read the story of the Exodus to them. I don't even know how many times at this point. That's right. They would literally be like, what? They don't. They don't know this. Why are they saying that? They wouldn't be thinking that rudely, but they would be genuinely confused. Why would someone who is claiming to say that the Bible is dumb and and illogical not then know that there's actually an answer to that? Because we know we're 11, right. you know, kind of thing. So I think when we are consistent to ground our children in God's word, I saw a quote from someone, I can't remember who it was the other day, and they said something to the effect of we really do injustice to the efficacy of consistently and repetitively reading God's word. Mm. The Bible says that we are to engage with the washing of the water by the word. So it's almost like we think we have to have all of our study materials lined up and we have this, have this quiet time and we have to have all of our intellectual ducks in a row and we have to be really smart and we have to have, you know, 45 minutes and all of this stuff. And the Bible is literally telling us, He's given us everything we need for life and godliness in his word, by his spirit, through his truth, in community with his people. People have gone before, learned from the Lord are wise. And we're over here fretting about like the best way to do it. And it's like, read it, read it often, read it again, immerse yourself in it. The washing of the water by the word. It's such a cool, like you can almost see just it washing away all of these false beliefs. But if we don't have that and we're not willing to engage in that, our children are unlikely to have that foundation. Agree? Oh, Abby, so good. In fact, this is kind of like, this is the sermon I'm preaching these days is that you do not need a curriculum. You do not need some fancy thing. Now we do use a curriculum for our homeschool Bible classes, but our our devotions as a, yeah. What's that? Do share share, because people will ask. (laughs) Yes. Foundation worldview curriculum. Phenomenal. Foundation worldview. It's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. But for our family devotional time, we just, we read the Bible. That's what we do. We just read it. And I love it because it's, it, it is amazing how, you know, you can do all these fancy, cute curriculums and stuff, but you just read the word and your kids will start engaging with it. Um, I, I would say more often than not, we'll just be reading through. And one of my kids will go like, huh. And when they do that, we, we, we stop. And we engage yep. whatever that huh was. And you yep. know what? If that's if that's the the end of it for the day, like, you know, I don't want them to think if they ask a question, then it's going to add like 45 minutes to everything. Yeah. So if, it, if that's it, then we'll end. And we'll just yeah. read two verses that day. And maybe it's a whole chapter the next day. But it, it always invokes questions. It always brings up conversations. And we also tell our kids, and I'm sure you do something like this as well, Abby, is we always say like, you know, growing up when I did, the big question was, what does this verse mean to you? Which is a terrible question when you approach yes, the Bible, because it doesn't matter what it means to you. What matters is what it actually means. So we don't mm-hmm. ask that question, but we always say like, what did you learn about God in this? Mm, because the Bible question. is not about you. The Bible is about God. This is God's self-revelation. So whether it's a story from the gospels or whether it's one of Paul's epistles, or if it's a historical story from the Old Testament, like what did you learn about the nature and character of God in this passage that we read. And if it's something you already knew, what were you reminded of about God? So, um, and that's a great question because then your kids know, like, as you read, okay, I'm going to have to come up with one 
that I say. And, um, and, and so I think that's a really good way to train your kids to read the Bible, not through the lens of self, but through the lens of learning who God is, because this is how he's revealed himself. Amen. And I feel like that in and of itself is an antidote to deconstructionism and progressive Christianity, air quotes, um, yes. because you are making the focus on the creator rather than the created thing. And we see in Romans 1 where they start to worship things that are created rather than the creator. And the things that are created are sometimes ourselves. We That's are worshiping right. ourselves. We are elevating our own wisdom. You know, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has given to God that God should repay him for from him and to him and through him? Or all things to him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Is like this thing that always goes to my brain when I think, uh, I'm sorry, but this is not about you. Like, it's such a strong statement of, what do I have to give God? Well, I have my heart. I have my mind. I have my soul to give him. Um, but other than that, like all wisdom comes from him. We have something similar that we do. I think I'm going to steal your question. Like, what did you learn about God? That's great. We don't ask that exact question. But my husband, who leads our uh, Bible reading in the morning, mostly unless he's traveling, um, will will ask them key questions. And he also loves to ask them picky questions because then they listen more closely. Like what was the color of the stone on the umim and the thumim, you know, kind of thing. And so they start like, like how many soldiers were there, you know, and they're like 632,000. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> wow. um, he'll even make, so it's not stuff that matters theologically, but it's stuff that they enjoy listening to as like Easter, listening for as, as Easter eggs. Um, and then we'll just memorize Proverbs together. We do other passages, but what I was thinking about uh, way back when you were talking about scoffing and mockery and you could show your kids these comments and say like, What's, what's a red flag here? Do you see any red mm. flags? I think one of the things my kids might say, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think what some of the older ones, like 11 and up might say, was, would be, or if I said, um, can you think of a verse that applies to this? They would be like, a fool shows his anger at once, but a wise man is able to keep his counsel. Um, those comments are showing their anger at once. They're not thinking rationally. Um, I, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned the emojis, the mocking emojis. Yeah. I always find those so juvenile. Like we, if, if it's adults interacting on the internet and someone says something that you don't like, your answer shouldn't be a laughing emoji. Your answer should be a thoughtful engagement, right? And kids know this. Kids know that we're not supposed to kind of oh, point and, you know, giggle at people. And so when we, when we're engaging with those proverbs, just those basic maxims of life, like, if you want to follow God's law, do this. You're not supposed to be angry all the time. You know, don't go into the house of this wayward woman. Don't you know? Just yeah, yeah. some really basic things there um, that are wonderful little nuggets that stay in their minds so that when they see a behavior, a comment section is not the same thing as someone going into the house of a wayward woman. But they're still able to go, oh, they've totally veered off the path. They are where they shouldn't be doing what they shouldn't do, you know, and kids yeah. can recognize that when we give them those tools. That's so good. I love that. I, I, I've been trying to my daughter for her homeschool Bible this year is doing Proverbs and she's kind of resisting it. She's not loving it. But that gives me encouragement to keep pressing through with Proverbs. and It'll get in there because it was written <laughs> to a teenager. That's the thing yeah. about Proverbs is written for a teenager. 
Yeah. Yeah. And you see all of those, like I said, those maxims that speak to our emotions, that speak to our motivations, that speak to our kind of rash actions. And we do them as adults as well, but you definitely see those tendencies with teenagers. Um, Elisa, this has been such a good conversation. Thank you so much for coming on here and chatting about this. Tell me the full name of your book, where your readers, my, my readers and all of our readers can find it, where they can find you. Um, you are just such an encouragement to me as a calm, logical, but kind voice on the internet, on podcasts, in books. And I'm so grateful for you. So tell, tell my readers where to find you. Oh, thank you for that, Abby. And I'm also just so thankful for everything you're doing. And you're going to be coming on my podcast yes. this season too. So I'm excited about that. Um, so yeah, my podcast is called the Elisa Childers podcast, super creative name there, <laughs> but that's um, also on YouTube and I'm on Instagram and Facebook at Elisa Childers. And the book is called The Deconstruction of Christianity, what it is, why it's destructive and how to respond. And that's available wherever books are sold, um, comes out January 30th. So depending on when this podcast airs, it's either just come out or is about to come out. And um, my other two books are Another Gospel and then Live Your Truth and Other Lies. I love it. Anything else you want our readers to know today before we sign off? No, I, I just I'm so thankful for this conversation. I always love to talk to moms because I am a mom and I'm a grandma. I forgot to say that in the beginning. I have um, when I got married, it came my marriage came with two older stepkids. And so my stepdaughter just had. Um, her second baby. And so we've just been on a little baby moon with our little grands, two grandbabies, but uh, this new little grandson. And uh, so it's been awesome. That's amazing. What's your grandma name? Uh, Isa. What is that? Is that so have a background? It's a little bit. So it's my, my first niece, my oldest niece called me Isa because she couldn't say Elisa. And then every subsequent niece and nephew called me Issa. So when it came time to pick grandma names, I was like, let's just keep it. Let's just keep it consistent. So I'm Issa. <laughs> I love that so much. Well, thank you for coming on. This has been such a blast to talk to you. I can't wait to be on your podcast. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. You too. Thanks. Bye. If you enjoy the MS for Mama podcast, I would be so honored if you would subscribe and follow along, maybe share with friends or even leave a review. And if you want more content on motherhood and biblical responses to cultural issues, be sure to follow along on Instagram at m.is.4.mama.